This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Democrat Michael Bennett wants to keep his U.S. Senate seat. He was appointed to it in 2009 and then won a six-year term. We've already talked to his Republican, Libertarian, and Green Party opponents. Hear them at CPRnews.org. Today, my in-depth interview with Bennett. Senator Bennett, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me back. Just 17% of Americans approve of the job Congress is doing. 17%. I'm sad to say that's actually an improvement over our low, which was at 9%. Nine. You were quoted in the Washington Post as saying, I got to the point where I was referring to this place, presumably the Capitol, as the land of the flickering lights, because the standard of success was that we kept the lights on for another two months. That doesn't sound like someone who's particularly fond of the job. Well, first of all, the statement is literally true. Uh, We have no appropriations process anymore. We don't go through the regular order anymore. And so in order to have people have the time to come home and campaign instead of, for example, uh, having hearings to confirm a Supreme Court justice, we passed not a budget, not uh, appropriation, but we passed one more continuing resolution to literally keep the lights on of the federal government until we get back uh, in the lame duck session. Why do you want a second term I think if, that, if those are the circumstances? I think that my office um, has been as successful as any at navigating the dysfunction in Washington and actually getting things done for Colorado and the country. We can talk about some of those yeah, things. Yeah, give me an example but, or two. Well, a few examples. I mean, reform of the Food and Drug Administration to be able to get life-saving therapies faster to patients. That was work I did with Richard Burr, a Republican from North Carolina. The estimates were one or two drugs a year would be approved. 50 drugs have been approved in the last four years as a result of that. Changes we've made to the Elementary and Secondary School Act, which used to be called No Child Left Behind. And the work I did on immigration is the Gang of Eight. Those are just three examples. But the point I'd make is I think there are a lot of offices back there that have not um, been able to work across the aisle, a lot of offices without results. I'd like to go back because I think I, I might have the chance to help us lead us out of this dysfunction because from my point of view, um, it's just not acceptable that it's become a land of flickering lights. And if you're lucky enough to have the chance to help make things better and restore these democratic institutions, I think you've got an obligation to do it. And I think you shouldn't complain about it. What about the current political climate gives you some sense that this is going to change? On some level, it's that I can't imagine that we could do any worse. Uh, The conversation we're having right now, I think, at the presidential level is not one that is um, adequate to the task of our figuring out how to create or restore a politics that's worthy of the aspirations that we have for our kids and our grandkids and will help the American people decide how we want to think about our country moving forward, both from a domestic point of view and also in the world, setting an example of pluralism and democracy. And I'm worried that caught in the undertow of money and accusations and gerrymandering, uh, we're at a moment where we look like we're not up to the task. That doesn't mean we can't do it. And what fills me with optimism is I've read American history, and I know we've come out of dark points before in our political process and been able to actually advance the cause of the next generation of Americans. I want to talk just a bit about the presidential race and the top of the Democratic ticket. One of the biggest controversies that Hillary Clinton has faced this season is her failure to hand over thousands of emails she kept on a private server when she was Secretary of State and her unwillingness to release transcripts of paid speeches that she gave to Wall Street firms once she was out of office. 
Democrats, meanwhile, have pushed Donald Trump to release his tax returns. Uh, In fairness, should Secretary Clinton release her speeches and emails? Well, first of all, everybody in modern American history who's run for president has released their tax returns. So whatever one thinks about what Hillary Clinton has done doesn't obviate in my mind the need for Donald Trump to release his tax returns. But on the the question of Clinton. Yeah. I mean, I think she's apologized for having had the private server. A lot of the emails have come out because of the investigative proceedings that they've had. Um, We know now what the sum and substance of the speeches are that she gave to the banks. This is in part through WikiLeaks. Through WikiLeaks. And um, I don't think there are a lot of surprises there. So, But on the whole, I think people ought to be more forthcoming rather than less when they're running for one of these political offices. Including Secretary Clinton, do you think? Including all of us. I think this goes to the heart of of many voters' concerns with her, uh, this this sense of, of a lack of trustworthiness. I think that she's got 30 or more years of scar tissue from being in the public space that has created at times um, the appearance of not being uh, as straightforward as one might want her to be. Um, And I think when people see things like, you know, the walking pneumonia that she had, and she chose not to tell people that she had walking pneumonia until she had the stumble in the car, and people say, well, why don't you just tell us that? From people's perspective, you can see why they would say that, and you would see why they might think she's not being totally forthcoming. From her point of view, she's pro- it's probably been exhausting to be uh, this public figure for all this time, and I'm sure that she has reactions about things that should be public and should be private. I think that's the source of concern that people have. We submitted questionnaires to all of the candidates for our online voter guide, uh, and that's now posted to cprnews.org. You listed immigration as one of your highest priorities. And as you mentioned, you were a member of the 2013 Gang of Eight, four Republicans and four Democrats who offered a compromise proposal for immigration reform, including a pathway to citizenship and tighter border enforcement. Estimates are that there are somewhere around 11 million people in this country illegally, uh, roughly 164,000 in Colorado. Why do people who are in the country illegally deserve to stay? Well, because many of them are making an enormous contribution to our economy. And and when you look at um, wh- how the American people feel about this, as opposed to how the current uh, Republican leadership that's running for president, Donald Trump, feels about it, they know that we're not going to realistically deport 11 million people from the United States of America. They know we're not realistically going to build a wall up and down that is above ground and below ground to stop illegal immigration. And I think what we need to reassert is a a rule of law and also value the notion that we are a nation of immigrants. That's what that legislation represented. We got 68 votes in the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, and we made enormous progress in that legislation. You mentioned it yourself, securing the border, internal security, a pathway to citizenship for the people that are here undocumented, rationalizing our agricultural sector, which is 80% undocumented workers. Unfortunately, the House of Representatives never took the bill up. You know, I've heard um, from some conservatives that if President Obama had truly wanted immigration reform passed, if that was a priority for his administration, he would have done it early when he had a Democratic majority. Have you heard that argument? And, and what do you? I've heard the it? argument. I think it's it, it is an attempt to um, 
cast blame in exactly the wrong direction. President Obama clearly supports fixing our broken immigration system. He clearly supported the bill that we produced in the Senate. And uh, whereas the Republicans in the House of Representatives have done nothing but pass pieces of legislation to overcome or disturb the president's executive order on, on immigration, they haven't even been able, Ryan, to pass a border security bill to say nothing of figuring out what to do with the 11 million people here that are undocumented. I want to say that Mexico has been the biggest source of immigrants to the United States for decades, but the Pew Research Center says that has slowed dramatically since the Great Recession. And in fact, between 2009 and 2014, 140,000 more Mexicans left than came to this country. Donald Trump must have missed that piece of research. According to Pew, this year's voters put immigration sixth on their list of priorities, though, behind economy, terrorism, foreign policy, health care, and gun policy. Why does this remain such a high priority for, well, for you? First of all, every one of those issues that you mentioned is a critically important issue, and we should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We shouldn't have to do things one at a time. And the reason it's been important to me is that I've worked on it already, but I also know, having traveled the state, how important resolving this issue is on immigration for our farmers and ranchers, for our ski resorts, for biotech companies outside of uh, Boulder or in Boulder, Colorado, who are trying to hire uh, young people that are graduating from the University of Colorado whose education we've paid for in part, but who are now being sent back to China or India to compete with us instead of staying here. I know how important it is to the kids that I used to work for in the Denver Public Schools. You were, in, you were a superintendent of DPS. Yeah, who find out when they're in the 10th grade that they're undocumented and what all the implications are for that. That's why we need to resolve it. Is there any it's sense that it's going to be resolved in this next session any more easily or less well, difficult sure than the anymore. past? I don't know. You know, it's difficult. This is a hard issue. Uh, but I think there is a sense among uh, among moderate Republicans in Washington, D.C., that if they don't find a way to participate constructively to address this issue, they will never elect another president of the United States. And that matters a lot to them. There is concern about terrorism after incidents in the U.S. and Europe. What specifically should be done to make sure that people who are admitted as either refugees or admitted legally as immigrants uh, aren't dangerous. Well, I'd say, first of all, that that immigration bill we were just talking about doubled the number of border security agents, added 20,000 border security agents to the southern border, and created internal security in the United States, which we don't now have. Forty percent of the 11 million people that are here are people that came lawfully and overstayed their visas. We don't know where they are. And the, our bill would have fixed that problem. So there's one suggestion. Another suggestion is a, is a bill that I have which would tighten up what are called the visa waiver provisions for people that have European passports but have traveled through countries like Syria and Iraq recently instead of taking on faith their passport from Europe. We wouldn't do that anymore. We'd ha They'd have to have a much more formal interview. Third point, the burden of proof should never be on the United States. The burden of proof should be on the refugee, that they're not going to be a threat to the United States of America. We need to make sure that we've got vetting in place to make sure that that's so. If we have any doubt at all, we shouldn't let them in. But the answer from people in, you know, the guy that's running against me in this race and Donald Trump has been to say we should ban all Syrian refugees from the United States of America. I think that's completely at war with who we are as a country, completely at war with our history. And You're speaking of the, of the general 
ban uh, temporary, though it may be on Muslims. Yeah, yeah. and com- well, or we, there have been. A t- you're right, and there's also been attempts on the floor of the Senate to ban Syrian refugees. In so particular. either one, these big categories of people, and a, I don't think that makes us um, uh, safe. B, I think it's at war with who we are as a country, and. C, it makes it harder for other countries in the world to help solve what is the worst humanitarian crisis we've had in recent history, which is the result of what's going on in Syria right now. Democratic Senator Michael Bennett is my guest. He wants another term. We've already heard from his Republican, Libertarian, and Green Party opponents. You can listen to those conversations at cprnews.org. A few fact checks. Bennett said the American public doesn't realistically think that this country will deport 11 million people or build a wall. There are no good measurements of what the public thinks is realistic when it comes to the issue. But many polls show that Americans' attitudes are softening overall on immigration According to the Pew Research Center, 6 in 10 oppose a wall, and a majority see undocumented workers as a valuable asset to the country because they fill jobs that U.S. citizens don't want. Senator Bennett also asserted that his GOP opponent, Daryl Glenn, has said the U.S. should ban all Syrian refugees. Glenn has often stated he would like to see all Syrian refugees thoroughly vetted before they're allowed in the country. On the campaign trail, he has trumpeted the emergency resolution he brought forward as an El Paso County commissioner. It withholds funding from Syrian refugees unless they're certified by the federal government not to be a threat to the community. While that falls short of calling for a ban, Glenn is a Trump supporter, except for a very brief hiatus, and Trump has called for a temporary ban on Muslim immigrants. Syria is predominantly a Muslim country. Lately, Trump has watered down his ban to call for extreme vetting of Muslim immigrants. Glenn has not publicly disagreed with that. Okay, more with Michael Bennett after a break, including an issue he has taken a pummeling on, his support for the Iran nuclear deal. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We are bringing you in-depth interviews with the candidates for U.S. Senate in Colorado. Conversations with the Republican, Libertarian, and Green parties have already aired, and you can hear them at cprnews.org. Today, it's the incumbent, Democrat Michael Bennett. Senator Bennett, you supported last year's nuclear deal with Iran, and you've since said that it has been effective in reducing Iran's supply of uranium and reducing the threat that that country could build nuclear weapons. Your opponent, Republican Daryl Glenn, cites the deal as a catalyst for his decision to run. He says the deal makes America less safe. Is that the case? Uh, It certainly was a catalyst for him to run. It It was a catalyst for others to run, too. Right now, as we sit here, somebody from out of state has written a $600,000 check to support a super PAC that attacks me on, on the Iran deal. And, uh, and I was attacked on the Iran deal before I voted for the Iran deal. And Ryan, sitting here today, I'm more convinced than ever that it was the right vote because uh, Iran has shipped more than 10 bombs worth of enriched uranium out of Iran. It has less enriched uranium than one would need to build one bomb. Uh, it's poured uh, cement into the plutonium reactor at Iraq, A-R-A-Q, uh, destroying the plutonium reactor. They no longer have 19,000 centrifuges spinning enriching uranium. They've got about 4,500. And there are scores of IAEA inspectors. Uh, on National the, Atomic Energy Agency. Right, on the ground in Iran doing the inspection. 
I would argue, and I think it's pretty clear this is true, that if we hadn't done the deal, they would have been able to receive the benefit of the sanctions relief anyway because the money was in other countries. It wasn't in the United States. Donald Trump simply can't understand that, but it's true. And having convinced every other country in the world that they were serious about acquiring a nuclear weapon but not the United States Congress, I think they then would have built a bomb in secret. They were two to three months away from building a bomb then. So do I trust the Iranians? No, I didn't trust them when we did the deal. I don't trust them now. But it's hard for me to see when we're dealing with the lethal conventional threat that Iran uh, poses in places like Yemen, southern Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon – that we're not better off having put the nuclear program at least um, on ice for now than having that to contend with as well as the conventional threat that Iran poses. Yeah, the conventional threat, you know, while monitors have said Iran seems to be meeting the terms of the agreement on the nuclear front, the country has conducted at least four ballistic missile tests since this agreement. And the UN Secretary General called that a violation of the spirit of the agreement we're talking about. Uh, I want to go back to that idea that you don't trust the Iranians, but you did a deal with them. I think there are a lot of people who might think, gosh, I wouldn't do a deal in business with someone I don't trust. I, I actually think that's a principled position. So if, if somebody's position is I, you should never do a deal with the enemy, I disagree with that. I mean, the, because uh, we that would have led us never to have done a nuclear deal with the Soviet Union, who was every bit our enemy. And um, you know, I sometimes wonder what would have happened to Ronald Reagan in an era where people in opposition to this deal wrote letters to the mullahs in Iran saying, you can't trust our president, which is what they said as right after this deal had been inked. Um, so I think that's a principled position. The position I don't think is principled is ones that, like my opponent has or Donald Trump has who says we should just rip the deal up. They have nothing to replace the deal with. There, there's no suggestion that they make. So if that's their position, rip the deal up, then I think they need to accept a world where Iran gets delivered back to it the 10 bombs worth of enriched uranium that it shipped out, that somebody goes, maybe my opponent would like to do it himself, goes and chips the cement out of the plutonium reactor. No, surely in there's a middle ground. Well, that you tell me what it is. Last year, before the agreement was approved, Senator Ben Cardin, the ranking Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, announced his opposition. He said it legitimized Iran's nuclear activities. And even if the terms are met for the next 15 years uh, before it, it lapses, the country will be able to quickly restore its nuclear stockpile and build a weapon. Talk to us about what happens when the deal is done. Ben Cardin, who you're right, uh, opposed the deal. I supported it. Uh, he and I have legislation together that helps to bolt down some of the things that are r remaining loose strings here, like making sure we're monitoring the money that's going back to Iran, making sure there's sufficient congressional oversight, making sure we're responding to the ballistic missile test that you talked about earlier. Yeah, what's your and, level of concern about I'm them? very concerned, and that's so that's a bill that he and I have together. I think there's I if I had to say one thing that most concerned me about the deal is the duration of it. What happens 15 years from now in the in the United States? 15 years is a lifetime for the Iranians, um, uh, not so much. And we tend to our attention tends to waver. So that it honestly that's going to be we're going to have to evaluate where we are as we head into that 15 year period. As part of this deal, Iran has promised that they will never use a nuclear program to acquire a nuclear weapon. I don't trust that. And what it, what it means is that the second we think they are developing a nuclear weapon, 
they've broken the deal. And what's available to us is every single option we had before we signed this deal, uh, including uh, military intervention. By no means the perfect deal is what I'm hearing you say. And can you can you take us just briefly into the process of how you weighed whether to support it? Sure, I'd because say I'd say that I, I first of all agree completely with your characterization. By no means the perfect deal. When I was in business before I was school superintendent, before I was in the Senate, we used to say um, negotiating deals. We'd say no deal is worth doing that doesn't die at least three times. If you don't, if you if the deal doesn't fall apart because one party hasn't walked away, you haven't worked hard enough at it. That was one of my concerns about this deal, um, and um, I'm not sure it was the best deal that could have been negotiated. A lot of that's 2020 quarterbacking, though, and you asked why on balance I supported the deal. It's because I think that it was by far a better choice to accept this deal than to walk away from the deal, a deal that almost the entire world had supported, um, knowing that Iran would have had the benefit of the sanctions relief and they would have been able to bomb, build a bomb in secret. Democrat Michael Bennett is my guest. He wants to represent Colorado in the U.S. Senate for another term. He said just in the last few minutes that an out-of-state donor wrote a $600,000 check to blast him on the Iran nuclear deal. That specific amount in this particular window of time can't be pinned down. But a group of mega donors led by casino magnate Sheldon Adelson has chipped in millions to super PACs to battle the Iran nuclear deal. In the octopus of super PAC funding, some of that could have landed in conservative PACs that are dropping coin on Bennett's opponent. One conservative super PAC, Restoration PAC, recently spent more than a million dollars to support Bennett's opponent. But there's no obvious and direct link between that PAC and the Iran deal opposition. More with Michael Bennett in a moment. We'll talk about Obamacare and disappearing coal jobs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This election, Coloradans will decide whether to keep U.S. Senator Michael Bennett in office or give someone else the job. We have heard already from the Republican, Libertarian and Green Party contenders. Today, it's Bennett himself, the Democratic incumbent. To healthcare, former President Bill Clinton spoke out on uh, that issue recently. He said, under Obamacare, 25 million more people have healthcare, but many small businesses and individuals can't afford to buy it. Uh, to quote the former president, we've got this crazy system where all of a sudden 25 million more people have healthcare and there are people out there busting it, sometimes 60 hours a week, with their premiums doubled and their coverage cut in half. It's the craziest thing in the world. Uh, looking just at people who are using Obamacare in Colorado, premiums will go up by about 20% this year for those with individual coverage. And a number of major health insurance companies are pulling out of the state or limiting coverage, citing rising costs. Uh, you've said you support Obamacare with some changes. What is your response to President Clinton? It's the craziest thing in the world. Well, he already made his own response to that, saying that he had overstated what he had said. Uh, but my response to you on this question is that we had very serious problems in our health care system before we passed the Affordable Care Act. We have very serious problems in our health care system today. Uh, and it's not just insurance. It's, it's also health care delivery. It costs much too much. Quality is, is not as high sometimes as it could be. 
But with respect to insurance in Colorado, it uh, I just is. I want to say all of those things were supposed to be addressed by the Affordable and, Care Act. And many of them were addressed, but they, many of them were addressed um, in incomplete ways. Many of them, there were shortcomings and there were many things that I wanted to do in the bill that weren't included in the bill. But we are where we are. The benefits, I would say, from Colorado's perspective is we've had half a million people that are insured today that weren't insured before the health care bill. People with pre-existing conditions can't be denied health care. People can't be thrown off because they've got a lifetime cap on what folks can pay. Kids can stay on until they're 26. and they're par- So those are all positives. The negatives that we're dealing with that are a problem maybe of the health care bill or maybe of health care generally are we, we don't have a robust enough market for insurance in our state. We don't have enough transparency about costs throughout uh, medicine in our state or in the country. And we got to create more competition and more transparency. Can you, can you create more con- competition through the Affordable Care Act? Change, I think change. we can, and I'll give you an example of where we lost it. So we had we we had a co-op here in Colorado that failed, um, and this came up in your in the questions that you were talking to my opponent for the race about. And there was a a part of the health care bill that had something called risk corridors in it, which was meant to readjust the risk based on what the pools looked like for health insurance. Those were defunded, and the co-op failed as a result of that. Now, is that the fault of Obamacare, or is that the fault of critics of Obamacare who defunded part of the bill? From the point of view of people living in our state, what they want is insurance they can afford. They want lower premiums. They want lower deductibles. They want there to be more competition, and uh, I think that's what we should, as a as a country, figure out a way to deliver the inefficiencies. In so our figure healthcare. out a way to deliver. Yeah, to say more about that. What what are the ways? Well, I've support. I supported last time I ran a public option. It was not part of the health care bill. I still support that. I think that that's a way of introducing competition that private insurers will have to respond to. A federal but, public option. Yeah, yeah, well, or one that's state that's backstopped by the federal government. We have to figure out what that looked like. But let, but listen, let me tell you this. In my office, and when I travel around the state, I seldom get complaints from people about Medicare who are on Medicare. I seldom get complaints from doctors about who are being reimbursed by Medicare. I do get complaints every single day from people that have paid into their private insurance. They bought, they paid their premium month after month after month after month. Then they make a claim, and then the private insurer effectively denies the claim by simply keeping them on the phone as long as as they possibly can. The market's broken. It's broken in Colorado. It's broken across the country. And you, I, you do not support Colorado Care, though, the state no, uh, no. universal health care no. proposal. But I think that what we need to do is have people of goodwill, Republicans and Democrats, working together to figure out how to fine-tune the legislation, how to repair it, how to make uh, health care continue to be less of a burden on on America. You know, we still are spending uh, a, a huge amount of our GDP on healthcare compared to our competitors around the world. Very quickly on subjects of energy. Do you think that communities should have the ability to ban fracking within their boundaries? Well, I don't think I think it's been it's clear now as a state constitutional matter that local communities cannot put those bans in place. But what I do believe strongly is that we have got to find ways of negotiating outcomes between the energy producers and local communities who are in conflict over where drilling occurs and where storage tanks are placed. It is unrealistic for 
the oil and gas industry, I think, to believe that they continue to drill adjacent to subdivisions and that they're not going to get real pushback from people in Colorado. I think they will get pushback. I think they already have. And the question is, how do they respond to that? Colorado, historically, we've been able to strike a pretty good balance here, but it ebbs and it flows. And um, if I can be a help to people having those conversations, I'm glad to do it. What role do you think coal should play in America's energy portfolio? I think it's important. I, I, you know, I think it's very important to understand what the facts are here because we have lost uh, roughly 1,200 coal jobs on the west slope of Colorado. There are probably more on the way based on what we know. And what I hear people say sometimes um, is, and my opponent is one of the people that says this, is that this is all because of the overregulation by the EPA. This is all because of environmentalists who have caused these coal mines to shut. In fact, it has a lot to do with market forces and the cost of, of gas. That's exactly right. I mean, we have had a profound revolution in shale gas in this country with fracking and directional drilling that has driven the cost of gas down to a place where it's competitive in many ways with coal. And in addition to that, in our state, we have a, a regulatory scheme to capture fugitive methane, which is something that's very important to do. It's a greenhouse natu- gas. Right, if natural gas is actually going to be fulfill the promise of being half as clean as coal. So the point here is that we have had a revolution. It is having an effect. It's a market-based revolution. And we have to find something to provide some relief for the coal miners and the communities that have um, are on the losing end of that transformation of our energy. Mix. And I'll say that those are lucrative jobs Huge. when you factor in yeah. pay and benefits. Average $90,000 in many cases. It's, and What's the likelihood that they would find something commensurate? It's extremely hard. And the likelihood, if we don't address it from a policy perspective, is probably zero. But I've spent some time, I was out there just a month ago, meeting with county commissioners and with economic development leaders on the West Slope to talk about crafting legislation together based on their ideas about how to create economic incentives for people to invest in rural parts of our state. Yeah, what would be an example? The new market tax credit is one example that came up in the conversation we had. Explain that. It's a tax credit that's used to incentivize companies to invest in places that have been hard hit, places where they might not otherwise invest, but with the tax credit, it makes it economically viable for them to do it. What we've got to do is figure out how to help diversify the economy so that we can move away from the boom and bust economy that we've had and people have more choices. Another thought here, which is not fully flushed out, but um, I'm working with Senator Gardner on Good Samaritan legislation to um, make it easier for people to clean up the abandoned mines we have throughout the West, including in Colorado, like the Gold King Mine, which spilled into the Animas River outside of Durango. There are a lot of questions around the cleanup of these mines around liability. Exactly. So a good Samaritan it, it, approach. And if we could get that done, um, uh, that might not create $90,000 jobs, but it might create jobs well above the uh, average income that people are earning on the, uh, in that part of the state. Market forces certainly are playing a role, but by the same token, uh, the Clean Power Plan, which your opponent in this race calls the war on coal, envisions a time in which there's there's much less coal and that coal-fired power plants are being shut down. So I'd like to go back to that fundamental question. Sure. What role should coal play well, in, an, in an energy portfolio I, I, going forward? I think going forward, if we can find a way to produce coal that and technology that can deliver uh, 
cleaner um, uh, sources of energy, then it can be part of the mix. So far, we haven't been able to do that. I do have a bill with a Republican named Rob Portman from Ohio that would allow um, people to get tax-exempt financing to put cleaner technology on coal plants. So I'm not saying there is no role, but realistically, there's going to be a much less of a role. And I think it's important for people to know that. And the clean power plan, which you mentioned, Colorado is um, 75 to 80 percent of the way to complying with it already. And I think it would be terrible if we walked away from that. Is it going to be more expensive for ratepayers? Real quick. It will be more expensive for some and maybe less expensive for others. The good news is that the cost of delivering renewables is dropping precipitously. And when I say precipitously, I mean when you look at what solar costs when I went into the Senate versus what it costs today, it's almost a straight line down the page, not a not one of those gradually sloping lines. We're seeing that with wind too. We're seeing that with natural gas as we discussed earlier. And also um, the thing that we really have to get figured out over the next couple or three years is storage technology and trying to get that down to a price where it will Just to store the power so that it's, so it becomes because baseline much power. Of many of these sources of power are intermittent. The Trans-Pacific Partnership and trade in general, global trade, has been uh, just a huge topic in this presidential race. Where do you stand on the TPP? I was one of 13 Democrats who supported the the fast-track authority to give the administration the opportunity to negotiate the best deal they could for America. My view, whether you're for TPP or not at the time, we should have been forgiving the administration the leverage to get the best deal. I think it's become very clear during the course of this presidential campaign that um, people are concerned about the negative effects of trade. Positive tr- effects are huge for this country, but they're very diffuse. The negative effects are felt by a smaller number of people, and they can be really tough. No different in many ways from what we were just talking about with respect to the coal miners on the west slope of Colorado. So I was just my, down in Pueblo and, yeah. and, and heard people ruining NAFTA there. Yeah, so my view is that without um, a, more of an expression from the administration about how they're going to toughen the environmental or labor standards. If the vote were held tomorrow, I'd have a hard time supporting it. In the end, I hope to be in a position to be able to uh, vote for a trade deal with this uh, region because the thing I want to do least of all uh, is leave the Chinese in the position to set the rules in um, this trading region. I want the United States to help develop those rules. And one of the concerns, Ryan, that I have about this presidential election is when you listen to the rhetoric, It's not just this trade agreement's bad. What you hear people say is trade is bad. I've heard Hillary say that. I've heard Trump say that. I've heard Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz say that. I disagree with that. I I think that a much more important issue for our economy is the consequences of automation and technology on our workforce. And a lot of our workforce has been displaced. I'll give you one example. We, we, I've create, my understanding is that we create as much steel today in Ohio as we did decades ago. But there are no people that are creating that steel because it's all become automated. And we've lost an entire election cycle of a discussion about what to do there for people that have been left behind in an economy uh, where machines can do the work and they can't do the work. And to me, there are probably a number of answers there, but uh, the most important one from my point of view is educating people for the 21st century using our K-12, higher ed, and workforce development dollars in a much more thoughtful way. Senator, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me.
Incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett is running for U.S. Senate in Colorado. We spoke with his opponents in the race earlier, and you can hear those conversations at cprnews.org. One more fact check before we wrap this up. Bennett said that 500,000 more Coloradans are insured today than they were before the passage of the Affordable Care Act. That's a bit off. The estimated number of individual health plans currently obtained through the exchange is closer to 450,000. And with recent shakeups on the exchange, that number could drop. Four companies have trimmed or eliminated their plans in Colorado. And if you're paying really close attention, you may notice that last week's interview with Bennett's Republican opponent, Daryl Glenn, was longer by about 12 minutes. And that's because Glenn was able to give us more time. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Over the weekend, 24-year-old Taylor Van Allen became the first man to slackline across El Dorado Canyon near Boulder. He wore a small safety strap and walked barefoot more than 400 feet above the canyon floor between Windy Tower Rock and Bastille Rock. His trek paid homage to a daredevil, Ivy Baldwin, who traversed the canyon on a tightrope in his 80s. That was in 1948. Denver writer Stephen White is fascinated by Baldwin, and he spoke to me last year. One of the last things Ivy Baldwin did is perhaps something that he'll be best remembered for, uh, in part because there's video of him doing it. It shows him, at age 82, crossing El Dorado Canyon near Boulder on a high wire. And uh, Stephen, he did this crossing, what, dozens of times in his life. There are various numbers in the history, but somewhere over 80 crossings of El Dorado Canyon in the last four or five decades of his life. And for a long time, even after his death, you could see the remnants of the wire, the anchors in the canyon walls. I've spoken to climbers as recently as 10 years ago who said that the anchors are still in place. Oh, Uh, we ran across an essay about Ivy Baldwin. It's unattributed, undated. But it says, once upon a time in a canyon not far away, there lived and died a man of short stature and tall aspirations. With squirrel shooter's eyes and a field marshal's mustache, his name was Ivy Baldwin, and he was as much a legend in his own time as he is today. Why have you become so fascinated with him? In the summer of 1974, two events happened. And one was I read an article in the Daily Camera in Boulder that the county commissioners were debating taking down a high wire that was strung across El Dorado Canyon. In those days, I think it was still called South Boulder Canyon, but they were planning to take down this wire for safety reasons. They were afraid that someone would use it. And I became fascinated with the reason it was there and did some reading at that time and discovered Ivy Baldwin and his crossings of El Dorado Canyon. The wire was strung 580 feet in the air, and it was somewhere between 550 and 650 feet long as it crossed the canyon. Did he have a net? He worked without a net. Oh, doesn't it get windy in that canyon? There are wonderful tales of the adjustments he had to make on the wire during hailstorms and windstorms. In those days, there was no instant weather, so Ivy would go out on his wire without knowing what lurked on the other side of the front range. And he managed his crossings in good weather and bad. 
the the wire itself was um it's narrower than most people use today i gather modern wires tend to be close to 2 inches in diameter and i read one description of ivy's wire that it was the size of his big toe um so slightly less than an inch in diameter you said a second event had led you to this fascination with him the summer of 1974 was very interesting for funambulism um, and that's the term of art here, funambulism and a funambulist. Correct. Okay. Putting the fun in ambling, I guess. In the summer of 1974, Philippe Petit shocked the world by sneaking into the under-construction World Trade Center towers, stringing a wire between the two towers, and spending an hour walking back and forth across lower Manhattan. I somehow heard about it shortly after it occurred, and became fascinated by it. And again, this was the same time I just learned about Ivy Baldwin. So I developed this, what has become a lifelong interest in funambulism that links these two men in my mind. Did large crowds gather to watch him? Um, Can I tell a story about El Dorado Springs? Yes. I think one of the things that many people in Colorado have lost sight of is the resort that El Dorado Springs was in the first 20 or 30 years of the 20th century. People would take trains to be there. There were eight trains a day from Denver to El Dorado Springs during the summer season. There was huge hotels in the canyon, um, a midway, a carnival, ice skating rink, huge dance halls, three wonderful swimming pools, not the one that we see today. And it was the center of entertainment for the Front Range outside of Denver and attracted visitors from all over the United States to summer there. And Ivy Baldwin was the featured entertainment in El Dorado Springs for over two decades. If you are longing for an image of this man, we have several at cprnews.org. He was a draw, in short. He was a draw there, and he was also the featured performer at Elitch Gardens shortly after it opened in Denver. So when he wasn't performing uh, in El Dorado Springs, he was performing at Elitch's. He was not just a funambulist, a tightrope walker. Let's talk about some of the other things that he did. He is a member of the state's Aviation Hall of Fame. First member, the premier member of, of the Aviation Hall of Fame in Colorado, and that's because of his work as a balloonist, um, the first person to do powered flight in the state of Colorado. He landed a pontoon aircraft on Sloan's Lake. Um, I'm trying to picture that today in Denver. Uh, Balloonist? Balloonist, he probably is best known around the world as a balloonist because he performed as a balloonist not just at Elitch Gardens where he did over a thousand ascents, But he also performed overseas. He performed for the emperor of Japan. And this was not merely sitting in the basket and waving. No, I read a description of of his balloon ascents where they would fill the balloon with hot air. And as the balloon started to rise, he would appear to get tangled by his legs in the rigging. And as the balloon rose, he would be hanging from the balloon. And people might be wondering, is this, is this an accident? Absolutely. It was all part of the act, but he looked like he was trapped up there. And he would do 
um, acrobatics as he hung from below the balloon at 2,000, 2,500 feet until he would appear to fall off the balloon and do a descent by parachute that would bring him safely to the ground. And he did this act well over a thousand times in his life. Wow. Was he ever seriously injured that you know of? Many times. He okay. Was, he was <laughs> in various accidents in balloons, dirigibles, airplane crashes. Um, as far as I know, he never had an accident as a funambulist. You have dug into his background. He was born in Texas and ran away to join the circus. Um, I don't know much about his early years. He was working with a partner and had become part of an act where um, they were working in support of another balloonist who didn't show up one day and Ivy took over. And that was the beginning of his career as an aerialist. He's also a veteran, isn't he? He is a veteran. And again, um, I'm very reluctant to talk about this in, in ways that make me sound like a historian. I'm Certainly don't want to play one on the radio, but um, there are stories that make it sound as though he was one of the first people ever to be shot down from an aerial vehicle in combat. He was doing surveillance during the Spanish-American War, and the balloon that he and a commanding officer were in uh, was shot down by the Spanish, and they both survived the accident. And so between his military service and then his international renown as a performer later, he saw all kinds of places. I mean, Cuba, India, China, Peru. Did he have a family? He did. He was married. His wife was his partner in constructing balloons. There was nowhere to buy them in those days. Hmm. So they sewed them themselves. And once they moved to El Dorado Springs, where he made his permanent home, once he was in his 40s, um, they had a daughter, and his daughter was really the influence later in his life that convinced him that he needed to leave the high wire behind. So the, he lived several years then beyond his last crossing. He crossed last on his 82nd birthday, and I think he died at age 87 in bed in El Dorado Springs. Is he buried in Colorado? Yeah. My understanding is he's, he and his wife are both buried in Denver in Fairmont Cemetery. Hmm. It strikes me as just remarkable that he's not better known. I still feel that way. You know, I, I feel like I'm the, the president of the Ivy Baldwin Appreciation Society and its only member. You know, when when we hear about the sudden interest that the culture gets in finambulists who have done remarkable things. And I'm an amazing fan of Philippe Petit. Um, but when Nick Wallenda plans his crossings, whether it's in Chicago or the Grand Canyon, um, we all become in awe of what these men can do on a high wire. And I think it's important for us to recognize that for decades and decades, we had one of the greats. Um, performing here every summer to thousands and thousands of national and international guests in El Dorado Springs. And I think, although he's well-known amongst Colorado historians, and you know, you can find out plenty about him at the Denver Public Library or the Boulder Public Library, or I'm sure at the Colorado History Museum, 
as a culture, I think we've forgotten him, and, and he deserves to be remembered. Do we need more Ivy Baldwins, Stephen White? Um, you know, one of the thoughts I have whenever I, I think about this man and, and how he lived his life is if he were alive today, we would see him a few times a year on Jimmy Kimmel. Um, <laughs> on a late night show. I he, see. Was, he was that kind of guy. Uh. I think he would get on a wire for anyone at any time and be happy to talk about it. Denver writer Stephen White talking about phenambulist and general daredevil Ivy Baldwin. Baldwin inspired last weekend's slackline crossing of El Dorado Canyon by Taylor Van Allen. At cprnews.org, there is video of Baldwin's 1948 crossing when he was 82. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters from CPR News.